You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, trying to be excited about it yet again... My co-hostess with the most is Paul Doroshenko. Trying to be excited about what? It yet again, because last week you were all dragging me, saying I wasn't excited enough to have you as my co-hostess with the mostest. I'm excited to be here. Are you? Are you? Now you don't sound excited. I am excited to be here. I'm happy to be here. I'm tired. You know, it's a long week. Lots going on in the office. It's hard to keep up with everything. Then drive out on a Thursday night. To chat about driving law, I'm excited to, you know, do it, but it's also, I'm tired. Yeah, fair enough. Well, then let's just cut to the chase, the driving law chase. You have not told me at all what we're covering tonight. You're right, I because... I just sat down in the chair and that's it. So. Well, unfortunately, I have not had a chance to even breathe today. I know. I I was finding our topics in between in between IRP hearings and traffic court and nothing ran on time today. It was a very stressful day. I noticed that, yes. Yeah. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was hit and run cases, because you deal with a lot of these. I deal with a lot, a lot of these. I mean, I've been dealing with hit and run cases for 21 years. So let me tell you about this case out of the Okanagan. Thursday night, so a week ago, um, a woman in the Okanagan was walking at night, uh, home from work around 9 p.m., uh, along Highway 97, and was struck by a car, 1999 Acura, being driven by an elderly man. <clears throat> Dangerous spot to walk. Yeah. Yep. Didn't didn't stop. She suffered some horrific injuries, and obviously the police started investigating a hit and run. Now, this is where things get interesting, because you've dealt with cases where people have inadvertently left the scene, not realizing that they hit a person. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. And what happened in this case was the elderly man comes home and says, I think I hit something on my drive. I don't know. And then they turned on the TV and they saw the report of the hit and run and went, oh my God. Yes. And contacted the police Mm -hmm. and are now cooperating in the investigation. I mean, it's... It's a big problem. People don't know what they hit. Sometimes they think that somebody's thrown something at their vehicle and they're terrified to stop because they're scared that it's some sort of uh, some sort of uh, attack. Uh, somebody's plotting against them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not completely illegitimate, right? Um, you know, people have thrown things at vehicles lots of times. I've had things thrown at my vehicle uh, where I knew somebody threw something at my vehicle, but... Um, you're an elderly person driving at night, uh, and, uh, you don't see necessarily what you hit. Um, you think to yourself that maybe you hit an animal and you don't want to stop. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you have these circumstances. Yeah. Now the law in Canada, well, at least in British Columbia, but also most provinces have similar provisions actually covers for these types of situations. So federally, The criminal code says you can't leave the scene of an accident. And if you leave the scene of an accident, you're liable for a criminal conviction. So long as the accident involves a person or another vehicle. 
or cattle. They took the cattle out. No, they didn't. Yes, they did. I looked this up because we were talking about the cattle a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure it's still in there. No, it's definitely not still in there. Hmm. Yeah, I know. It used to be cattle. It used to be that if you hit cattle and left, you committed well, a criminal it, and offense. The annotation said cattle included sheep and other livestock. <laughs> yeah, cattle includes all livestock. Oh, huh, okay. Well, I haven't looked at it since the change, but... Yeah, so no longer does hitting cattle count as a criminal offense, but hitting a person or a car, criminal offense. But if you don't, you don't commit a criminal offense, if you leave the scene of an accident after hitting a person or a car, if you don't leave for the purposes of escaping civil or criminal liability. Correct. But there's a presumption in the criminal code that if you leave, essentially you're presumed to be doing so for the purposes of escaping civil or criminal liability. There has been some negative judicial treatment of that presumption, but generally you would have to provide some evidence as to why you were what legitimate reason you had to leave. Like you exchanged information or um, you were having a medical emergency and need to get to the hospital or something. Which seems pretty reasonable, you know, the yes. hum human thing to do. You, If you are in that circumstance where you've left the scene of the accident with an excuse, you would think you would be more than happy to provide the excuse, except you don't really want... In cer some circumstances, also, they'll, start, I was drunk. <laughs> they'll start researching the excuse to try and use it against you in one way or another. Yeah. So, on, you know, on the one non-legal hand, you'd be looking at it and saying to yourself, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'd be more than happy to explain why I left in those circumstances until you realize that, uh, that they just use that against you in cross-examination or what have you. But the other thing that's interesting about this presumption is that it wouldn't, like, it, it would apply in this situation of the elderly man, but his explanation, I thought I hit a thing that wasn't a person or a vehicle, would actually satisfy that provision of the criminal code and help him escape liability for the criminal events of leaving the scene of an accident. Correct. Again, it would require testimony, but it's interesting because it is not something that can get you off of the Motor Vehicle Act offense of hit and run. Really? Yeah. Under the Motor Vehicle Act, it's much more strict. In the BC Motor Vehicle Act, you commit a hit and run if you are involved in an accident. Um, you fail to stop and state your name. You fail to render reasonable assistance or you fail to exchange information. This is Section 68 of the Motor Vehicle Act. It reads as follows, duty of driver at an accident. The driver or operator or any person in charge of a vehicle that is directly or indirectly involved in an accident on a highway must do all of the following. What, if, then, you, what if you hit a garbage can lid? It doesn't, it, it doesn't, it refers to colliding with an unintended vehicle and obligations that you have then, locating and notifying the person in charge or the owner of the unintended vehicle of all of the relevant information or leaving in a conspicuous place and notice in writing, giving the information. And if the accident results in damage to property or uh, on or adjacent to a highway other than a vehicle, the person must take reasonable steps to locate and notify in writing the owner or person in charge of the property of the fact of the accident. So if you think you hit something like a garbage can lid, you still have to Notify somebody. If you think somebody threw... Rubbish. 
<laughs> if you think somebody threw something at your vehicle, you still have the obligation to stop and exchange information or, or take steps to notify somebody because it's not just directly involved in the accident, but also indirectly involved in the accident. Yeah, Honestly, you think somebody's ever going to be charged with that? Do you think anyone would be charged ever with that? Yes. Not ever. Really? You don't think police would happily ticket if they knew that they could for that? I think uh, if they knew that they could, they probably already know that they could. And the reason that they don't is because they know they can't. I've had circumstances where something was hit or a person was hit and the person, the driver believed it was something thrown at their vehicle and the police were never going to charge them in those circumstances. No, I mean... Most police officers wouldn't, but in the same way that most police officers wouldn't ticket somebody for having a cup holder cell phone. Most police officers wouldn't arrest somebody for causing a disturbance for yelling at a police officer. Yes, that's a different thing. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's where that ego comes just, in. Just because there are, mm. you know, common sense would say, obviously, this isn't the intention of the law. Although I don't actually think that you can say that this isn't the intention of the law. What is an indirect accident that, would, that should result in somebody stopping and stating their name and exchanging particulars? You know, I, I, I think the intention is fairly clear that it's still either some clear that there is injury or damage to something. Uh, and, um, property or a person, um, you know, if you hit a, a Rubbermaid garbage can and it goes bouncing off the road, do you have an obligation to stop and exchange, uh, uh information with a Rubbermaid garbage can and then report it to ICBC? No. Reporting to ICBC is different because that's a term of your insurance contract. Okay, but still, but no. stopping and exchanging with the garbage can? Paul, you didn't answer my question. What's an indirect accident supposed to mean in this legislation? You hit the garbage can, the garbage can goes and knocks over the person's mailbox. I don't know. Indirect accident. Secondly, where do you get the intention that, the, uh, that, that flows through this? There has to be some damage to property to require you to stop, remain at the scene of the accident, render reasonable assistance, and produce... Um, uh, to anyone, uh, your information, anyone sustaining loss well, or injury. I'm not sitting here looking at the legislation. Maybe you are. I mean, I've looked it's at it mind. in the past and dealt with it with respect to reporting it to ICBC, so I'm not looking at it. But I would think that if you've, uh, if you've struck some, if you've driven into the ditch, not damaged any property and driven back out of the ditch and not damaged any property, you have no obligation to report it to anyone. Well, that's correct, because you only have to produce in writing to any other driver involved in the accident or to anyone sustaining loss or injury. But in your garbage can there example... You There's the loss or injury, the In your garbage can example, yeah, that's the property damage. But if in your ditch example, it's not. Yeah, I know, but you just... You would. said the garbage can would not be a reportable situation. Yeah, I don't think it is. I think it is. Well... <laughs> <laughs> go run over a garbage can and see if you can get yourself charged. I'm not going to deliberately run over a garbage can. I'm not going to get up charged with dangerous driving just to prove a point to you on a podcast. Yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> driving without due care and attention? No, I meant to run down that garbage can, officer. <laughs> can you imagine? I was paying close attention. <laughs> the judge would be like, Kyla, why did you do that? Reasonable because I had to prove a point to Paul. Yes. Anyway, um, 
Okay. What was your point? You're back to this accident back in the to Okanagan. This, accident. And this you're person to yourself. would have had at least an obligation to stop and investigate whether some type of damage or loss was sustained. Well, in the circumstances where uh, I've had clients who thought something was thrown at them, they were uh, terrified of stopping or they continued down the road far enough away that nobody could hurt them or attack them and stopped and looked down the road and didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's, there's the reasonable expectations of what the reasonable person is going to do as well, I think. Uh, and at nighttime, if you think somebody's thrown something at your car, uh, you know, you might get home and phone the police to say something, somebody's thrown something at my car. I'll tell you, if I got home and I felt something hit my car, I would go look at my car when I got home and I probably would report it to the police. And I think that is also something a reasonable person would do. The presumption in most of these cases is that the people are either drunk or prohibited from driving and not supposed to be driving or for some other reason shouldn't be behind the wheel or shouldn't be where they are at the time. Supposed to be working, you're out driving around. Um, supposed to be, uh, supposed to be uh, going to Canadian Tire, but you're actually coming back from the, uh, from the bar. Um, so there's a sort of a, hmm, people not stopping because they have something that they're doing that they're not supposed to be doing, which is really too bad, because if that's the case when you've hit a person, that's pretty low. Okay. That was a lecture and... Uh, I want to switch gears entirely. That's probably a good idea. And surprise you Ugh. with some new legislation that was tabled today by the federal government. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. So last week, I mean, this does not relate to driving law, but last week we saw the guns and drugs bill, which, why are you shaking your head? Well, I haven't looked at the list of guns, but, you know, I just... No, I don't care about the guns. They're getting rid of all the mandatory minimums for drugs. Hooray. Oh, I know. That's great. They're making CSOs available for so many more things. And they're getting rid of like half the mandatory minimums for guns. They finally listened to you, Kyla. No, I don't think it was me. (laughs) I I haven't been like hammering the table on mandatory minimums. I was going to make a joke because we asked for a repeal of all mandatory minimums. And I seconded a motion at the CBA um, annual general meeting um, to change our are the CBA's position on it. And the, uh, uh, I was going to make a joke that, you know, wow, the day after we did this, the government tabled legislation. Gosh, they act fast when the CBA recommends they do something. Yeah, of course they didn't get rid of the mandatory minimums <laughs> in any respect for driving offenses. They're not nope. planning on doing that. Nope. Those ones need to go. No, they... Please, please. Justice Lametti, if you're listening. The impaired drivers are the worst pariahs. They're the, they're the, they must they're have a mandatory minimum. They're low-hanging, tough-on-crime fruit. Anyway, new legislation, Bill C-23, tabled today. Yes. It purports to reform the justice system in response to lessons we learned during COVID. So, more specifically, it purports to make... Things easier for people who can't get to court, like allowing more remote appearances, allowing case management to be done of self-represented accused. It changes the fingerprinting act so that all those people who got told, oh, sorry, we're not doing fingerprints right now because of COVID can now be compelled to go back to court, uh, compelled to go to court to be given an order to go back to the police station to be fingerprinted so long as they're 
matters are still before the court or they were convicted. Yep. Does that. Super fair, right? Um, then it also makes interesting changes to the warrant provisions. And the way the government's been selling the bill today is like, it's going to make it easier for you to appear in court remotely. You can appear by video. You can appear by phone. Isn't that great? The court's going to be easier to deal with all of these problems if we find ourselves in a pandemic again. Sure. Sure. Cool. Super, like, long time ago needed reforms. But sneaking in all slithery in there is some pretty troubling reforms to warrant provisions. Now, I know you're looking at me and you're like, Kyla, why the fuck do warrants relate to driving law? Like, I don't care who taps my phone if I'm charged with an impaired driving offense. Well, first of all, you do if you're Carol Berner. And secondly, Carol Berner listeners was somebody who was like subject to a huge sting operation to try and find evidence that she'd committed an impaired driving offense after blowing 80 after running over a two-year-old child and killing her. A little older than that, I think. In any event. Yeah. For, I don't know. <clears throat> the, the point was, everybody got mad because a pretty little white girl died, and so they used every resource available to the police to get a conviction on an 8080 case. It was very sad. I'm sure it was, it was sad very sad, but this, I, I'm not a parent, and I am a lawyer, and I thought that that case was very poorly handled. I, I was displeased with it as well, and the implications have been bad overall. However... Back point, to the warrant provisions. Point being, warrants come up in police investigations and impaired driving cases all the time. Most. Yes. My yeah. my cases, or sorry, not my cases, my um, video series, Steps of an Impaired Driving Investigation, deals with warrants. In that, a great series, by the way. Anybody yeah. who hasn't watched it. And, and today's episode dealt with warrants to obtain hospital records. Because if you are involved in a motor vehicle collision that causes you serious injury and maybe causes other people injuries as well, the police can get warrants for samples of your blood. They can get a warrant if you're injured or if somebody else is injured to take blood from you. Um, like literally to compel a doctor to stick a needle in you and take your blood, even if you don't consent. They can get warrants to take the hospital records out of the hospital and use those hospital records. They can get warrants to take your blood samples out of the hospital fridge and go analyze them themselves, even though they weren't collected in forensically suitable containers, and even though the containers may already have been opened, and even though they may not have been stored properly because the hospital was done with them. All true. But what are the changes? So ordinarily, to get one of these warrants, an officer would have to sit down and they would have to draft what is known as an information to obtain a search warrant, an ITO. The information to obtain sets out the officer's grounds to believe an offense had been committed, his grounds to believe that the thing that has evidence related to the offense is located in the place to be searched, usually if it's like a warrant to actually get your blood or your body. <laughs> his blood is in his body. <laughs> Prove it! Um... You know, uh, that type of thing. Um, so he sets that all out, and then he has to swear it. And of course, they can swear it in front of any other peace officer. And then once it's sworn, it has to be submitted to a justice. So either an officer has to go and appear personally in front of a justice, or the officer has to do it uh, by an information to obtain 
that produces uh, uh, by telecommunication producing a writing. Those are the words used in the criminal code. That's fancy criminal code language for fax machine. Yes. The, uh, if you are not part of the legal world and you just heard the word fax machine, <laughs> what is you this? would be shocked that we use fax machines all the time. Yep. And it's uh, just the method still being used in the justice system. It's this magical machine where you put paper in on your end <clears throat> and the paper comes out on the other end, maybe. Well, no, it doesn't. You put paper in at your end and on the other end, a duplicate is created. I said paper comes out on the other yeah. end. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily a duplicate, as we've discovered in some trials. So fax machine. So ordinarily they would fax these in impaired driving investigations by and large. They're doing their applications for search warrants in the middle of the night because that's when most people are driving their cars into other people and causing them injuries. So it makes sense that they're allowed to do it by telecommunication. If a police officer wants to get a search warrant by filing an information to obtain by telecommunication that produces a writing, a police officer has to provide a paragraph justifying why it is not feasible to get the search warrant by appearing personally in front of the justice. They won't have to do that anymore. They won't have to do that anymore. That's one of the big changes. You now don't have to say why it's not feasible to appear personally in front of a justice. You can just do it by telecommunication that produces a writing. So rather than saying, it's three o'clock in the morning and the Judicial Justice Center isn't open, or I'm in Golden British Columbia and the court only sits for four, uh, um, four days or uh, this quarter, um, once a month. Um, and so I can't appear in front of a justice. Now it's just, you just fax in your rec your request for a search warrant and, and that's all there is. That's all she wrote. Well, that's interesting. Uh, not surprising, I guess. And I think most people would say that that's a reasonable change. And it is quite a bit different from many jurisdictions in the U.S. that we know where the police are driving over to a justices of, of the peace house uh, in the middle of the night <laughs> Phone and the judge. banging on the door, Wake phoning judges, waking them up to get them to sign at three in the morning to look at and sign a search warrant. So to me, this makes some sense. Okay. Judicial authorization still coming. Well, what if I told you that the code is not only being amended to allow this, but it being amended specifically in circumstances for blood in impaired driving investigations on top of that. Well, it's not going to change the fact that we will still have always the same defenses that we've succeeded on every time that we've had a blood case. I've never lost a blood case. I don't think you've ever lost a blood case. There's reasons for that. We're not going to tell people what they are on the, on the podcast. But the uh, yes, they, they, the feeling always is, as the prosecutors are looking at it, oh, they're going to get it because of this this warrant here and let me read you this new provision and tell me what you see as a problem paul a justice may issue a warrant authorizing a peace officer to require a qualified medical practitioner or qualified technician to take the samples of a person's blood that in the opinion of the practitioner 
or technician taking the samples are necessary to enable a proper analysis to be made to determine the person's blood alcohol concentration or blood drug concentration or both if the justice is satisfied on an information on oath in form one that blah 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 yes now what is the problem that you spotted well there's words i got hung up on i don't you know you tell me what the problem is the problem is that now all the police officer has to have is the opinion of a medical practitioner that it will be that it's necessary to take the blood to determine their blood alcohol concentration well that's the thing that's a great one the officer doesn't need to form his own opinion <clears throat> but the the person who's taking it out has to form the opinion now yes which yes. means that the the in order to get this warrant a doctor would have to violate doctor patient confidentiality exactly so there's a bit of a problem there there's a huge problem. It's turning doctors into state agents. Yep. And moreover, the... Not only that, how are they going to express their opinion? How is that opinion going to be established? And we're going to get to cross-examine every doctor on their opinion? That's what we're going to try and do. So the other new change, big frightening change to the telewarrant provisions is ordinarily you have the telecommunication that produces a writing. You get a written document that tells you what the officer's basis for the belief. Now the officer can get a text. A telephone call. Oh. No record created. This yeah, is that's not good. massively problematic good. because it makes no, is there's no ability to review. Like there's nothing in the code or these amendments that the, the Crown is seeking to the code that would require the officer to separately produce a document explaining their their basis for it and to have generated that document prior to making the phone call and not to alter it after the fact, right? Because otherwise you're going to get into situations of retroactive justification where they say they knew information that they didn't know. There's nothing that requires the police officer to record the phone call or requires the, the, the justice to record the phone call and to make the recording available in the circumstances of a person who's had a telecommunication warrant issued so that you can review it and Reviewability of search warrants is massively important. Hugely important. And I'm just thinking a little bit further down the line of the the damage that this does to the justice system. So we talk about driving law. Driving law drives the law. And so many of our charter rights have been carved out uh, in driving cases. And this, the law has been established as a result of driving cases. And uh, the, there's this perpetual uh, pressure to to uh, basically do a uh, end run of some manner or another just because it's um, uh, the suggestion that it's somehow connected to impaired driving. And it's terrible because it's a, you know, it's, it does great damage to our overall, to our justice system in general, uh, that the, uh, the government spends so much of their focus trying to undermine and take away rights in impaired driving cases. And then, of course, once that is established in the impaired driving case, because the judges are often going to look at it and say, well, it's not that much of an infringement. And, you know, impaired driving, it's a terrible thing on our roads. Uh, and then next thing you know, of course, it ends up used in some other context where you're looking at it and going, wow, this is really starting to get unfair. So that's the slippery slope argument. For the most part, um, it's hard to identify slippery slope circumstances, except with our immediate roadside prohibition scheme in BC, where we've seen the on slippery slope. Yes. So this was, I'm sorry, that was taking the philosophical approach. 
Yeah, I just think it's like extremely problematic because, you know, if you look at the law on on warrants or the law on searches, the section eight, you know, the test for whether a search is conducted in violation of, of section eight, one was the search authorized by law? Like, was there a warrant or a provision authorizing it? Two, was the search, was the law reasonable? And I don't think you're going to overcome that hurdle if there's no reviewable record for the search. And three, was the manner in which the search conducted reasonable? Again, no reviewable record for the for the issuance of the authorization. And you're expected to, like, somehow overcome this hurdle like it's it's i i i I just can't see how crown can justify this um as uh how parliament can justify this is not a section 8 breach and then you have this other problem that is inevitably going to arise as a result of this where you have people who are subjected to this who have their privacy massively invaded like your blood samples your hospital records Oh, I know. Every time we see these hospital record cases, I'm, I'm, I'm offended. And I've, some of the things that I've seen in it's hospital your most records, private information, some of the things that I've seen in hospital records that they've got warrants for, has you know upset me greatly to see that this is the information they've managed to get about people. Your private medical information. Yeah. So I don't like it. Anyway, I hope to get an invite to testify at a parliamentary committee about my concerns about that. Well, it won't mean a trip to Ottawa anymore. Every parliamentary committee is just going to be by Zoom, Kyla. But I want to go to Ottawa in well, the summer. In the summertime, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when Parliament's not sitting. <laughs> in spring or fall, actually, yes. not when it's too hot. In early fall or in late spring. Exactly. Paul. Yes. I also thought I'd surprise you this week because I know it's been a rough week for you and for me. And I thought I would give you a gift. Is it a the ridiculous driver of the week? I'm giving you two. The ridiculous driver of the week. Oh, excellent. Two ridiculous drivers of oh, the week. that's a gift. Because that's I couldn't choose between these two doozies. Oh, okay. Good. I'm looking forward to it. So My eyes are closed so I can visualize it. The first one, you know how I love court cases that come out of rap music. And you also yeah. love music. Yes. Where there was the ridiculous driver who was mixing music as he drove a semi-trailer yes. truck. He had yes. two, like a, he had a, a mixing uh, turntable there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You also know how I love stupid excuses for speeding. Oh, yeah, there's been lots of them. I don't know that we've had them on the Ridiculous Driver of the Week, but we certainly have got them from many police officers over the years and heard them from clients as well. Well, this might be the best stupid excuse for speeding ever. So this guy is going 120 miles per hour. Not kilometers, miles. Okay. Um, he's 21. He's on a Florida highway, of course. He's on Florida. Florida. And he's... Like, almost hitting other vehicles. He's not immediately stopping when the, the police car tries to pull him over. Probably because if you look long enough in your rearview mirror to see the police car, you, you're going so fast that you're going to cause an accident. Sure. When he finally pulls over, he tells the officer, I'm sorry, I didn't know reckless driving was illegal. Hmm. And then the officer goes, well, why were you driving 120 kilometers an hour? Miles an hour, yeah. Now 120 miles an hour. 
And he said, oh, I was listening to the song Asiento Vente. I, that my, my we're gonna have Spanish to, gonna might have to be. Find the song anyway. Yeah, Asiento Vente, which is a cut on a, an album released last year by the rapper Track Insano. Sure. And he, he explained that that means 120, so he figured he should go 120. Not a great excuse. Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, not a great excuse. 120. You know, really, what is it all about? It's about freedom. It's about the freedom to drive 120 <laughs> miles to drive an 120 miles an hour. And if Be you involved. live in America, you're, there's, there's freedom all over the place, and you feel so free, and so you can drive 120 miles an you hour. You know, the other thing is, like, if you're involved in an accident and you flee the scene... You're not doing it to escape civil or criminal liability because you didn't know that reckless driving was illegal, but also it was so hard to slow down at that speed. Sure. And freedom. And freedom. Um, freedom. The, uh, see, you know, I expected something else. I expected the, uh, what I call the Led Zeppelin defense. What's which that? is, you know, you're listening to the immigrant song and you can't really slow down. That's what I found. Sure. I listen to Led Zeppelin every once in a while because I find it humorous. Okay. Sort of in a spinal tap vein, but I also find that, you know, I drive a little faster when I listen to it. Okay. Better still, and you've probably seen this one on the listservs that were on for DUI lawyers this no, week. No, I didn't get a, I didn't get a chance to look at them even this week. I was so busy. Oh, well, there is a new record for the highest blood oh, alcohol level. I did level. see this. I did see this. I saw this in the news. Re- oh, my recorded gosh. Recorded by a guy in Oregon. Oh, my gosh. This is mind-blowing. 20... There's no machine. There's no machine that will record it. It's got to be blood. It was a blood draw. This guy was in a, a crash following a short chase with police. He had a... a bit of a very long chase in this case. A blood sample oh taken gosh. at the hospital with a blood alcohol level of... 0.778. Now, the legal limit is 0.08. So that is... Almost, that's nine times the legal limit. We're talking... Nine and a half, yeah. Yeah. We're talking beyond what should be coma. So people, when they get to... Uh, to uh, 400. 400. Four to 500, you should be in a coma. I've never seen 500. The uh, highest uh, I think we've seen in the office is like 440 or something mm, like that. Nope. 486. That's my case. 486. My record. The, yeah. Yeah. Um, or as the judge said, the dubious record. <laughs> well, it's not your record. It's a, my it record because I defended the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, I mean, that is that is just phenomenal. 770, was it? 778. 778 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood. Yep. Wow. Yep, extremely, extremely, extremely high. How did now there that are survive? well, there are recorded instances of people who are just like extreme alcoholics who have blood alcohol levels that high, who function normally. There's a case of a guy who had a blood alcohol function level normally. I don't think so. There's a case. It's in a study. I think Dubowski identified it. A guy who was totally able to button his shirt with no difficulty. I can't do that sober. And he had a blood alcohol level of like a thousand milligrams per cent, which doesn't even make sense. But Okay. Um, yeah. But I, it's I, more I alcohol than blood. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not. It's, uh, it's, it's 
still less than 1%. Yeah. 1%. Still. But that's, I mean, remarkable. Remarkable. There are people who just are such extreme alcoholics that they can function at those levels. Or, alternatively, there are problems with the hospital analysis. Well, that could be too. You never know. Maybe they swabbed him with um, some uh, uh, ethanol cleaner before they jabbed that needle in, and that's how they got it. Yes. Not likely. More likely. <laughs> in person's at 778. Wow. That is just absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. I cannot imagine a person getting to that point. Uh, cases that I've seen where people have gotten to three and 400, they are in near coma. I mean, we're talking beyond stupor. Yeah. Stupor is a technical term. My over, my 486 person was, that was a, that was a tough one. Those are people with real problems. Um, it's usually a real problem because they've got a real problem. And often they end up dead because they walk in front of cars and things like that. Um, can't get into their own homes. Freeze. Uh, probably happens in Russia from time to time. Yeah, wow, that is really remarkable. When I saw it, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, I can believe it, but I never thought I would see a human get to that point and still be operating a motor vehicle. Well, there you go. And that's why we need better reviewability of search warrants, because blood samples like that cause us to put our jaws on the floor. <laughs> That's your, that's your spin yeah. on a guy who's we at need, 778. We need, we need to be able to review search warrants because some people have really extremely high blood alcohol concentration and they were driving and they caused an accident. Uh, please take me seriously. <laughs> good luck making that argument. I try. Well, those uh, are two good ridiculous drivers. Yeah. That's true. There you go. I still like the guy who's mixing the music in the semi-trailer in Washington State. I was thinking about him the other day. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe he will. I was thinking on Saturday of um, Hank on the Larry Sanders show singing Spinning Wheel. And then last night in the middle of the night, my brother texted me a video of it from YouTube. Isn't that freaky? No. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was weird. <clears throat> That's our podcast. So if you have had a blood alcohol concentration above 400 milligrams per cent and you want to show off how high your blood alcohol level is, give us a call. We'd love to hear about it. Send us an email. Show us a screenshot of your blood results. I don't what know. goes up must come down, including yeah, your including blood alcohol Yeah, including BAC. Yeah. Um, and if you have any other driving law-related questions, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.